seat and let's get going. I am really glad that we're being able to celebrate the Lord the way we are this morning, aren't you? And just to think about all the different ways. Listen, God is active all over the world, is he not? And in some places, maybe the fruit is more evident. I mean, how often do you get a chance to be a part of something like they talked about in Peru where hundreds and hundreds of people come to know the Lord and yet you go to other places where they're, you know, you're picking them one at a time off the tree, but nevertheless, praise God for every single individual. And God is working, man. And, and, and that's, that's really what it's all about. We are in a Bible study in the Gospel of John and actually what we're going to look at is not uh, it's not all that different. It's 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 similar theme to what we were just been talking about with missions and and the the idea is this is that God is without a doubt, regardless of where on the planet, God is in the business of drawing men and women to Jesus Christ. Amen. You believe that? The Bible says in a couple of places, and we have the references in your notes. John chapter six and verse forty four, Jesus says, "No man can come to me except the Father, which hath sent him, sent me, draw him." And I will raise him up at the last day. So God is in the business of drawing men to Jesus Christ. Unless you think that maybe God is only drawing a select number of men, he makes it very clear that that's not the case. In John chapter 12 and verse 32, Jesus says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, and he literally is referring to his crucifixion that would be soon coming after he said that. He said, If I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And so Jesus Christ has been lifted up on a cross. He's died that death in our place. He was buried and rose again the third day. We know the story. And because of what he did, what he is doing is he is actively drawing every single man and woman, boy and girl on this planet to himself. Now, every man and woman, boy and girl has a free will and has the ability to choose whether or not they're interested in that. Uh, But there is no exception. Uh, God is no respecter of persons. He draws me. He draws you. He draws every single one of us. And uh, we're going to see that played out in today's story. Uh, in order to do that, we've got to get just a little bit of a running start, a little bit of context from last week. So we're in John chapter 19, and you may want to prepare by just opening your Bibles there to John chapter 19. But the story is that we have the Roman governor, the Gentile, Pontius Pilate, who rules over the area of Judea, who now is confronted. He has Jesus Christ in front of him, and he is questioning and judging the Lord Jesus Christ. And and so as he's dealing with that, he comes to the very wise conclusion at the end of chapter 18, we saw last time, that he says, look, I, I judge Jesus Christ to be not guilty. He says, I find no fault at all in this man. And and last week when we studied that, we saw that although Pilate came to the right factual conclusion, yet he didn't make the right decision. He still is going to ultimately sentence Jesus to death. And so we learned that it's not enough just to acknowledge the right information if we don't act on that information. And that's the, the dilemma that we see here with Pilate. Now the thing about Pilate is that Pilate is what I would call a relativist. Pilate's a relativist, and you go back at the end of John chapter 18 and and the discussion back and forth with Jesus Christ, Jesus says, look, I am come to this planet to make all men aware of the truth, and Pilate's response in verse 38 is, what is truth? The Bible says, and then he immediately just left the room. So Pilate really didn't ask the question truly desiring to know the answer, what is truth? It was more of a who cares about truth? Pilate's a relativist. He's, he's the kind of guy that if he was a modern man in our language, he would, say, he would emphasize something like, 
situational ethics. Uh, uh, what's pragmatic? What works for today? It doesn't necessarily have to be true. And this whole idea of absolute truth was not even on Pilate's radar screen. And so he's a relativist. That's who he is. And as we come into chapter number 19, because he has tried to get rid of Jesus, he's tried to dismiss him off on other people, and Jesus just keeps coming back to his judgment seat. He can't get rid of him. And what we'll see in these first 12 verses of John 19 is that Pilate literally is conflicted internally because he knows some things that are accurate about Jesus. He's not guilty. But yet still he's confronted with this dilemma. The Jews are really pressing him, crucify him, crucify him. And so this internal conflict that Pilate is experiencing ultimately leads him to compromise. And that's what we're going to see today, internal conflicts that lead people to compromise. And Pilate is, a, is an ultimate example of that. He compromises his integrity and gives in to the pressure of the crowd around him. So knowing that, uh, please understand as we read together, and we're going to read together now, um, that dealing with Jesus Christ is a very serious matter. And please do not allow yourself to slip into the position that Pilate found himself in, having to judge Jesus Christ. You do not want to be in that case. So follow with me as I'll read starting in John 19, verse number 1. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and said unto them, the Jews, Behold, I bring him forth to you that ye may know that I find no fault in him. That's a funny way to show you find no fault in him. Verse 5, Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have the power to crucify thee and the power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever make himself a king speaketh against Caesar. And from this point forward, Jesus Christ speaks no more to Pilate. Interestingly enough, I realize it's translated into English here for us, but the last word recorded for you in your English Bible that the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to Pontius Pilate is sin. It's sin. And although the Jews have the greater sin for delivering him, Pilate also, because it's greater, it's a matter of degree, Pilate also has sin in judging Jesus Christ. So these are his conflicts. Let's pray and we'll jump into it. Lord Jesus, please open our hearts and minds. Please help us to see you. Please help us to understand where each of us are at as individuals. And if there be people here today that do not yet know for sure 
that they have a personal relationship with you, that their eternal home is in heaven should their physical life end soon. Lord, I pray that this would be the day that they would receive you as Savior and Lord. And Lord, for those of us that would say we know that, that we would learn the lessons of being able to cooperate with you as you draw men and as you use circumstances of life to give people, every man, woman, boy, and girl, the opportunity to respond to your love. We pray that you would teach us these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we'll see the story concerning Pilate. Eventually then we'll make the application concerning us. The first thing that we see about Pilate is that he is bothered by facts. He is bothered by facts. He's conflicted by the fact that he understands clearly that Jesus Christ is innocent. He is not guilty. He reiterates it in chapter, he says it originally in chapter 18. He reiterates it twice in chapter 19, verses 4 and verse 6. And he understands, if we do just some of the review, I gave you some references in your notes and some other places you could look at. He understood some things. If you went to Matthew 27, you understand that Jesus Christ was delivered to him. He understood that Jesus Christ was delivered to him for envy. He wasn't delivered because he really did anything wrong. And when he questioned him, he came to that conclusion as well. He knows that the Jews are just mad. They're just jealous. They're just threatened. And he knew that he was delivered for envy's sake. In Acts chapter 3, it says that he was determined to release the Lord Jesus. Of course, he did not. Uh, in John chapter 18, at the end there we saw last week, he endeavored to bring his acquittal. Remember, he had that whole idea of this pardon that could have been offered on the Passover. The, the Passover pardon. It's, it's your custom on Passover. We'll let one of your guys go free. It's, it sounds ridiculous that you would take a guilty man and turn him loose just to make people happy. It's happy season. It's Passover. Just turn a guy loose and let him go free. It's Passover. And the Jews insisted, no, send us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. That, the whole pardon thing is weird to me, by the way. I, we, every end of a presidential term, you know, they can pardon people when they're going out of office. You ever think, never mind, that's enough. That's crazy to me. How just, you're guilty, so what? President's my friend, now I'm free, it's cool. Um, that's what they were doing, and it didn't work. And his compromise was, we're gonna work this pardon deal, and still yet, God is working. Jesus won't go away. There he is, he's still in front of him. Uh, according to Luke chapter 23, he's willing to release the Lord Jesus. He desired to do so. He wanted Jesus to be able to go free. He was conflicted because of that. And he compromises again. And this time, because they insisted, he says, well, I'll send Jesus to be scourged. Now, in John's description of this story, he doesn't go into detail about what the scourging looks like. You may have some thoughts and, and figures in your mind about what that was like. The, the Romans, the, the word scourge is, is a noun. It's a, it's a whip. It's also a verb when you, when you do that to somebody, when you scourge somebody. And so a Roman scourge would look like that. It would look like something with a handle and it would have like leather lashes that go out from it with embedded pieces of stone or bone or metal that would be embedded in there. And when the Roman soldier would whip you, then the, the whip would typically go around the body and they would pull it and it literally would tear furrows into your skin. And it's just, the, it is especially designed by these unbelievable Roman minds that, that developed this system of torture to bring a man as close to death as possible and yet still keep him alive, to maximize the level of suffering. 
And it was commonly used. And so they send Jesus, this innocent man, he compromises and sends Jesus to endure this unbelievable, horrific beating. And he brings him out. While that whole time goes on, not only did they beat him, they add insult to injury, they mock him, they make fun of him, they take a crown because they say he's a king, but it has thorns. They beat it down into his head. They put a robe of purple showing royalty Purple, how about that? And they do that, not on purpose, just happened today. And so they did that, and they're making fun of him. They're mocking him. And he brings him out in front of the crowd, and Pilate has no idea what he's saying when he says this statement, behold the man. Behold the man. And if you could behold the Lord Jesus Christ at that time with his flesh, and some of you have seen some of the film depictions of what that looks like and how he would have had his flesh torn and ripped to shreds and he's mocked and he stands there. And what he's doing when he basically says, behold the man, which by the way is good advice for all of us, behold the man. He's basically pleading to the Jew's potential sense of pity. And he's like, is this enough? What he's, he's trying to appease them with a little bit of blood. They wanted blood, I give you a little blood. So rather than doing what's right, rather than acting on the factual understanding that he knew, rather than using the power that was given to him by the government to set this just man free, he says, now let's just beat him within an inch of his life, show him to the Jews, and they'll probably be like, okay, that's, that's enough. And in his mind, that's how I'll get away with this. This will be my situational ethic. This will be my compromise. This will be my pragmatic solution to make everybody, supposedly, happy. And it doesn't work. The crowd shouts out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate says, you crucify him. I find no fault in this man. But he did. He did sentence him to death. He did actually turn him over. Modern man might look at that and say, yeah, well, he meant well. I mean, he didn't really mean to do it. Yeah, but he did it. And he turned Jesus over to ultimately be crucified. The facts were clear. Pilate just wouldn't act on him. He's a compromiser. And just... Practically speaking, inspirationally thinking through a story like this, I don't know about you, but it makes me wonder if every time that we compromise truth, we know what God wants us to do. We know there's something that the Lord has made clear to us and we just don't act on it. We just sin. I wonder if that adds to the stripes. I wonder if maybe those wounds sting a little more. I don't know. Jesus receives this horrific beating because a man who knew the truth refused to act on it. Refused to act. He was bothered by the facts. He was also bothered by family. Now, you have to go to Matthew's gospel to get this story, but in Matthew 27 and verse number 19, the same story, it's given us another little piece of information. It says, when he was set down on the judgment seat, Pilate, 
his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? She understood it. For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. So God was using the truth to influence Pilate. God is now using his family, his wife. And God sends her to him, and he was urged by her not to sentence this just man, Jesus Christ. What was the dream? I don't know. But it bothered her. And it bothered her enough to realize, man, I've got to do something. I've got to warn. I love my husband. I have got to warn him. I have got to help him. I have got to help him from making the biggest mistake of his entire life. And she pleads with him to please leave this Jesus alone. Don't go there to protect him from what could happen as a result. And so Pilate didn't listen, of course. And we realize that, you know what? Sometimes guys just ought to listen to their wives more often. Amen. Had a funny feeling. <laughs> guys just ought to listen to their wives more often. At times, they, I mean, they're just going to nail it. And God can use people, obviously, to speak into your life. By the way, sometimes guys shouldn't listen to their wives Adam shouldn't have listened to his wife, right? Sarah told Abram, hey, here, I can't have a baby. Just take this one and, you know, okay. Should not have listened. I mean, seriously, the Bible lesson in all this? Man, sir, you have to decide. It's up to you. to You receive the information. It's up to you to decide. Pilate received the information. In this case, he should have listened, right? But he didn't. He didn't. You know what? This story, it's it's all through the Scripture. Uh, For example, very briefly, Mark chapter 5 is the story of a demoniac man, very demon-possessed, legion of devils. Jesus shows up, casts the devils into the swine, run off the cliff, right? And and, and the picture of this man who is demon-possessed that Jesus heals from this is a wonderful picture of salvation. Uh, It says in Mark chapter 5 that he went from this state. He used to be dwelling among the tombs. No man could bind him. He would be crying and cutting himself. Two, we see after Jesus cast these demons out that he was sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. And after all that happened, you wouldn't be surprised to know that this previously demon-possessed man says, Jesus, where are you going? I just want to follow you. Wherever you go, I want to go where you go. And what did Jesus tell him? He said, no, no, thank you. (laughs) Go back home and tell your friends. Tell everybody back home about me because that's what needs to be done. You know the story of the woman at the well, John chapter 4. Similarly, once they had their exchange, and in about the middle of that chapter, verse 24, something like that, um, she finally says, I know that there's a Christ, there's a Messiah that's supposed to come, and he says, I'm the one, I am that person. And immediately she goes back to her town, right? She goes back to Samaria, and she starts telling everybody she knows, I met the Christ, I met the Christ, I met the Christ. Pilate had this deal where he was, he was bothered because he knew the facts. He was bothered because his wife is doing the same thing. She's telling him the same thing. And God's given him a chance. He's working on his heart. But Pilate's a compromiser. The last thing we see that he's bothered by is fear. He's bothered by fear. 
And we see it in two different aspects, really. Uh, it's the fear of God it's to start off. In verse number 7, the Jews answered him, by the way, for the first time they told the truth, we have a law, and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Now they're finally telling him what they really brought him for. Because he made himself the Son of God. And it says, as soon as Pilate heard that, what do you mean the Son of God? I thought he was just king of the Jews. What do you mean the Son of God? I thought that he was, just, was guilty of insurrection against the government and not paying tribute to Caesar. Oh, that's what... And when he heard that he was claiming to be the Son of God, it says he was the more afraid... I mean, he's already a little nervous, right? Now he's thinking, oh, oh my goodness, who am I really dealing with? He goes to Jesus and he says, whence art thou? Where are you from? Pilate is the, is the governor over Judea. He would know that Jesus had his birth certificate from Bethlehem. He's not asking physically where he's from. He's basically saying, Jesus, are, are you from heaven? Wouldn't this be a great time for evangelism? Wouldn't this be a great time for Jesus to say, well, it's funny, you should ask. <laughs> Jesus, not a word. That's interesting. Not a word. And I can't help but think, you know what? All through the scriptures we see this. It's almost as if, and, and I'm just extrapolating, okay, so just roll with me. Jesus, by not saying anything, is basically saying, enough. You've got enough. You have enough evidence. Now, what's left, you have to take a step of faith. And you know what? All through the Bible, you know the story in Luke chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus and, and the whole deal. He's like, just, just send Lazarus to go to my brothers and sisters so that they don't have to come and, and live in this hell. And Jesus, what they say? He said, they've got Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. If they won't hear Moses and the prophets, they won't believe if somebody raises from the dead. And we meet people all the time who have excuses and who are just, maybe they have some fear of God and maybe they think that they have some respect for, for God, whatever that means to them. But they will not make the step of faith. They have enough information. They don't need any more information. The information has been made very clear. And when he saw that, he was the more afraid. Deep inside of every man, there is something that stirs. There is the knowledge of God. There is the existence of something greater than ourselves that is in all of us. I don't care if people call themselves atheists. I lived in a country that was an atheistic country by conviction as well as by law, okay? And, and my conclusion on all of that is this. God doesn't believe in atheists. You ought to write that down. God doesn't believe in atheists. Listen, those rascals get to the end of their life. Listen, when you can stand proudly with your intellectual defiance all you want, but when it's your neck on the line, they get real religious because they don't know what's out there next. They get real religious, and they'll cry out, Oh, God! God, I thought you didn't think there was one. And there's a fear of God. There is, there is a base level churning inside of every man. And that's something you need to understand. That's something God does. That's something he uses to draw people to himself. The other thing is the fear of God's, small g, God's. Now, it says, they said, he said, look, you crucify him. And they said, no, listen, 
If you don't do it, you're no friend of Caesar. Anybody who makes himself a king is against Caesar. So you're either with Caesar or you're with Jesus. You've got to decide. And they put the, the pressure on Pilate because Pilate, you've got to understand, in the Roman system, the emperor, right? Tiberius would have been the Caesar at that time. And the emperor of that time was considered a god. But it's small g. And so now he's conflicted because now his personal idolatry is in jeopardy. All of what he stood for was based on this Roman idolatrous system. But not only that, he's the governor. He, he's so far down the line under Caesar, it ain't funny. But his job's probably in jeopardy too. So it's not just his idolatry, but his income is in jeopardy. And this whole deal with Caesar, all of a sudden now he's not just fearing God, he's fearing all the gods around him. All the little things that he worships, all the little things that influence his personal life and comfort and safety and understanding and his life that he's come to enjoy. But if you're ever going to surrender your heart and your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to lay every bit of that at Jesus' feet. You have to come to the point where you're at the end of yourself. You've got to get to where you're recognizing who you are before him, and that's just a sinner. You've got to recognize that he is who he is. He is the Son of God, the only way, the truth, and the life. You have to understand that you can and need to just lay it all. Lord, I ask for nothing. Please just save my wretched soul. And when you do that, he will. But anything short of that is a compromise. God was speaking to Pilate, but Pilate wasn't listening. Pilate, by all accounts, is burning in hell today. That's serious stuff. Okay, so that's what the holy, true, eternal Word of God inspired is written and recorded for us to understand about a man who lived 2,000 years ago. What has that got to do with us? Well, let's just take a look. Because Pilate is a Gentile. Pilate's not a Jew. He wasn't raised in the Jewish system. He represents every unsaved man today. And the ways that God drew Pilate and draws man is the same way that he does it today. Pilate could not easily be rid of Jesus Christ. He could not just dismiss him and just kind of forget about it and, and out of sight, out of mind. He had to pass judgment. Either he is innocent or he is guilty. So do each of us. You can't just dismiss Jesus. You can't just put him on the back burner. You have to understand that today, if you are wrestling with these issues and you are still just working through it, please understand that this day, your postponement of making a judgment is exactly equivalent to making the judgment, no thank you, Jesus, at least not for now. So for now, no thank you, Jesus. And you cannot be neutral. You cannot live your life that way. So Pilate, like all of mankind, is bothered by, all of mankind then is bothered by facts, we would say by history and the Bible. (laughs) Jesus Christ is a historical figure. Jesus Christ literally lived over 2,000 years ago on planet Earth. The story of his life and 
Ultimately, his death and resurrection is is well documented. There are no world religions, non-Christian world religions that reject the existence of the real man, Jesus Christ. They all receive it and accept it. Jesus Christ's life factually exists. He is, was who he was on this planet. He is who he is, and it has been made very clear to us. And the way that it has been made very clear to us is because it has been recorded for us in no other than the Bible. Now, it's recorded in a lot of other places, but the Bible being the most authoritative. And if you did just a very cursory review and study of literature and the types of evidences that are required to verify whether some book that you hold in your hand, some historical record that you hold in your hand for real events, nonfiction, are real or not, there are evidences of manuscripts that have to be reviewed and they are counted and the way that they corroborate with one another. There is absolutely no piece of literature ever on the existence on planet Earth's history ever that is more verifiable than the New Testament account of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secular literature people agree that the Bible is the single most verifiably accurate record to man. And it stands to present the facts of who Jesus Christ is, the Lord of glory. He's not just a good man. He's not just a prophet. He's just not, a, not just a moral teacher. He's all of those things. He is God in human flesh. That's how he is revealed to be. Those are the facts, and they are not in dispute. And that bothers people. <laughs> Because they'll, for many different reasons, known only to them, they just want to stiff arm it. They just want to push it out. They just want to let it go and say, eh, whatever, maybe, I'll get to that later. And they're bothered. They're conflicted. People are conflicted by the the historicity. They're conflicted by, by the biblical defense of who Jesus Christ is. Have you ever wondered why People all over the world, religious and non-religious people, when they want to make a point with authority, they quote Bible verses. Have you ever noticed that? It happens. Because there's just something about this book that stands apart from every other book that's ever been written. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, I put in your notes, very well-known verse of Scripture that talks about the Word of God as quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It says it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Do do you realize that book you hold in your hands, if it's a Bible, (laughs) can discern what you intended to do? Not just what you do. What you do is on display. What you intended to do, the Word of God can figure that out. Well, I'd probably have a little more respect for that thing. (laughs) But that bothers people. An unsaved man, it bothers him too. I got a little saying I I like to use. I say it this way. Facts are stubborn things. Aren't they? I mean, facts are just stubborn things. I mean, you can justify them any way you want. You can interpret them any way you want. You can twist them and reword them any way you want. But if it is a fact, it's just a fact. And like Jesus in this story, it just stands there. Say what you want, do what you want, respond how you want, believe it, compromise it, twist it, but the fact 
stands. This is the truth. This is the truth. And if we will just share facts with people, then God can use it. God can use it. That's an important thing. And that's what I want you to understand. That leads into our next thing. People today are bothered by history in the Bible. People today are also bothered by personal witness. You gotta understand, and it's been the theme this whole summer, and today especially, we've had so many reminders of God sending people all over the world to be his witnesses. And God will send real-life human beings to warn you about eternity, Jesus Christ, and judgment. Many of you have already made your decision for Jesus Christ, and thank God for that. Some of you may be here still, still calculating whether this is for you, and I'm glad you're here. But whether you're within the sound of my voice today or whether you're thinking about people that you know back home or on the job or in the neighborhood, lost people all over the world come in contact with Christian people. God is doing amazing things all over this world. And many of those people, like many of us, before, I can remember before I was saved when the first time people started to come to me, they get a little irritated. Why are you talking to me? Leave me alone. I don't want that piece of literature. Don't talk to me about that thing. And they get a little convicted because God is working on them. And he is, have you ever thought about that? How many people, think about it in your own life, Maybe some of you are here today because somebody that loves you, a family member, a close friend, came and shared Jesus Christ with you. And when they first, first came to do it, you might have been a little hacked off. Like, really? But they love you. Like Pilate's wife loved him. And they came to warn you and to help you and to care enough to do that. And if you're here today and for some reason you're still considering and haven't made your decision and it's grinding at you a little that people seem to keep talking to you about Jesus. Can you at least consider the possibility that they do that because they love you? Because they don't want you to ultimately end up in the place Jesus warned us about if we don't receive him. A real burning lake of fire. And Christian, obviously many of you already are, would you seriously consider loving people enough to just take the word of God to people right where they're at today. Thank God for people who will travel across countries and boundaries into the far-reaching places of this world. Thank God for those people. But there's people all around us every single day that do not understand a clear presentation of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. They've heard of Jesus. They've got some facts, but they don't know what to do with it. And God needs to use, he has chosen to use us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's called the ministry of reconciliation. He has chosen to use us to bring the gospel to them. And we have got to do this, y'all. We cannot sit by and say, I got mine, hope they get theirs. This year marks 30 years that I've been saved and I will never forget the life of that man that knocked on my dormitory room door who never knew me before and shared with me the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the greatest thing that anybody's ever done for me in my entire life, and the least I can do is to try and attempt to do that greatest thing for somebody else as often as possible. That's how we've got to live our lives. 
That's why we evangelize. That's why we send missionaries around the world. That's why we start churches. That's why. But it's not just the job of an evangelist or a pastor or a missionary. It's a job of a Christian. And we've got to do our part, brothers and sisters. We've got to do our part. 2 Corinthians 3 basically tells us in verse 3 that our lives may be the only Bible some people will ever read. Some people ain't going to pick up a Bible and read it, but they know you. Why don't you live it out? Why don't you talk to them about it? Personal witness, that's one of the ways God uses to draw people. And the last thing is conscience. People bothered by their conscience. Pilate had fear. There was this internal churning within him. That's your conscience. The fear that just maybe all this Jesus stuff is real. I mean, what if, right? It's that still small voice that's inside you that even though while you're justifying your behavior and figuring out why you think you might be okay without Jesus, there's just that internal moral compass that kind of just won't leave you alone. Everybody's got one. I don't care what country you were born in. I don't care what religious system you were trained in. I don't care who your parents are. Everybody's got one. It is, that way. It is the thing that sets mankind apart from the animal kingdom. We have a conscience. If you think your dog does, sorry. They don't. You do. No conscience in the dog world. Humans only. It's a God thing. It's the spark of God life in every man that needs to then spring forth into eternal life as we receive Jesus Christ. Jude, one chapter, verses 22 and 23. And of some have compassion, making a difference. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Romans chapter 2 talks about the conscience. It says in verses 15 and 16, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, talking about Gentiles, talking about people who are far from God. Their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Amazing doctrinal study in Romans 2 about how God justly judges every human being whether or not they've ever heard of the name of Jesus Christ. But nobody is saved apart from Jesus Christ. That's why we must get the word out to every single person. But God can justly judge a man or a woman guilty before him because they have a conscience. And man, by nature being a sinner, will 100 out of 100 times, no exception, violate the standard of his own. Forget the standard of the word of God. Man won't even keep the standard of his own conscience. And all God has to do is replay that film footage and say, see, here's your, you didn't have a Bible? Here's your personal standard in your conscience, right? I know that, you know that. Here's where you violated it, guilty. We have a conscience. It's what God uses. And it's there for, if your conscience is bothering you, you should be happy. God's trying to get your attention. Ask him what it is. He'll show you. Because we live in this life, it's a spiritual battle. It's a serious, serious deal. And this spiritual battle is going on for your eternal soul, for the eternal soul of your family, your friends, your neighbors. And God pricks your conscience to urge you to respond to him. A little bit earlier in Romans chapter 2, verses 4, 5, and 6. 
Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. At the end of the day, you receive a certain amount of information factually. You receive some verbal witness that for whatever reason God has allowed to make it into your ears. You get it, whether you come to a church and get it, whether you read the Word of God and get it, whether you listen to some podcast from somebody else, you read a book that that proclaims the gospel, you get it, you get the message, and it bothers you on the inside. At the end of the day, you have to obey the gospel, surrender your heart and life, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way anybody gets eternal life. If you're here today, and you feel as though, wow, all those things have been happening in me and I have not known what to do with them. God is drawing you. The pressure that you might feel in your chest is not me, it's not First Baptist Church. It's the Holy Spirit of God who loves you and wants desperately for you to have an eternity with him. Will you respond to him? We're gonna pray in just a second. Many of you would say, I'm already saved. I've done that a long time ago and I'm so thankful. Be reminded of how thankful and all the great things Jesus did for you. But you know what? How thankful are you? Enough to carry the word to other people? Enough to really take the time and the effort to say, oh, wow, I, I have been needing to talk to my sister, to my brother, to my cousin, to my coworker, whoever it might be. I know, God, I know I need to do that. Will you just cooperate with God? God is working in those people, I promise. Would you cooperate with God? And maybe, just maybe, they'll decide to act and to change their hearts and their lives. Let's pray together.